the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, this morning I want to start with a bit of an anecdote that I uh, read uh, earlier this week, and I think it speaks well to our topic this morning and a topic that we've been covering uh, for several weeks now. Perhaps you've heard this joke before. There was a man in a hot air balloon, and he realized he was lost. He reduced altitude, and he spotted a woman below, and he shouted, Excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I would meet him an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. The woman below replied, You're in a hot air balloon hovering approximately 30 feet above the ground. You're between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. You must be in information technology, said the balloonist. I am, replied the woman. How did you know? Well, answered the balloonist, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. Frankly, you've not been much help at all. If anything, you've delayed my trip. The woman below responded, You must be in management. I am, replied the balloonist. How did you know? Well, said the woman, You don't know where you are or where you're going. You have risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. You made a promise which you've no idea how to keep, and you expect people beneath you to solve your problems. The fact is, you are in exactly the same position you were in before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. More than the difference between management and IT, this speaks to the pride of man. I would imagine this joke is one that IT people like to share. But the reality is, in this story, both of those people think they're right, and both of the people are blame-shifting. And this story points out a challenge that we face all the time in all areas of life, not just at work. Disagreements, different versions of truth, blame shifting, judging, assuming that you are right and therefore others are obviously wrong. Thankfully, in the midst of our pride and arrogance and our conceit, we can look to the Savior. We can look to His truth as our guide and these truths will challenge our pride and conceit. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 is our passage for this morning. And in many ways, Paul brings to a summary or a conclusion a lot of what he has said over the past few verses and even chapters that we've looked at over the last few weeks and months. Verses 6 and 7, 1 Corinthians 4. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, 
so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In these two verses, we are going to look at three challenges. Three challenges to our pride and conceit. Three challenges to our pride and conceit. The first challenge to our pride and conceit, and of course, obviously, these three points hopefully will help us to be humble, help us to seek God's word and God's truth. The first challenge to our pride and conceit is the practical example. The practical example, and I see this in the first half of verse 6, which I'll read for you again. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So here Paul is beginning by saying that all the illustrations of humility and service that he has used of Apollos and himself were to teach the Corinthians a lesson, to show them not only by his writings, but also by the example that the Corinthians have seen in him and Apollos. Now, what are these things that he refers to that he's applying to himself and Apollos? Well, they're the various images that we have seen in chapters 3 and 4 that make up his argument regarding God's wisdom and humble service. So remember the context. The Corinthians are venerating. They're lifting up Paul and Apollos specifically, but also Peter and Jesus to a sinful level. It has caused factions within the church. And that's where it would be a sinful level when lifting up Jesus by using his name and his teachings to create division within the church. And it's really, as Paul calls them out on, it's a source of pride. It's not so much about Paul and Apollos. It's about them making themselves better than others within the church. And so he starts, if you recall, by giving the distinction between God's wisdom versus man's wisdom, which man's wisdom is not wisdom at all. It is foolishness in the eyes of God. And then he goes into specifically three different illustrations that he gave us on how the Corinthians should actually view him and thus all Christians, but specifically their leaders. And by way of review, the first illustration that he applied to himself and Apollos was that of the farmer. If you look back at verses 6 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 3, we see that. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9 was the farmer. And you'll recall these verses. I want to read them for you. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So again, he says, I'm me and Apollos. Sure, we watered, we planted, but it is God's ministry. God's the one who causes the growth. It's his farm, if you want to put it that way. He goes on right into the next verse to start the second illustration that he's applied to himself and the other church leaders, and that is that of a builder, the builder of the the body, the builder of the building of Christ. Look at verses 10 through 15. We're still in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, 
like a wise master builder, and you remember back in that day that would combine both the, the roles of the modern-day architect as well as general contractor. He says, I laid a foundation. And another, meaning the other human teachers, is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And then we came to chapter 4, and the passage right before the one that we're looking at this morning, he gave the final picture or illustration, which is, was that of the servant and steward. Look again at verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring bo- who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, as I alluded to earlier, all three of these illustrations that Paul has applied to himself have a common theme. And that is this. Christians, all Christians, not just church leaders, have a responsibility, but God is in charge. Christians have a responsibility, but God is in charge. And when I say God is in charge, it unpacks all of those things. It's God's ministry. It's God's church. It's God's word. It's God who has given you the responsibility and privilege. Christians have a responsibility, but God is in charge. And to go back over these illustrations in, in the illustration of the farmer in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3, we saw that Paul and Apollos planted and taught the church according to God's instruction. But God is the one who changes the heart and causes the growth. It isn't that Paul and Apollos refrained from causing the growth. They can't do it. And this further highlights what we're talking about here of God being in charge. It is only God who can change the heart. It is only God who causes the growth. It is God's church. It belongs to him. He created it. He died for it. He redeemed it. Then in the illustration of the building or the builder and architect in verses 10 through 15, still in 1 Corinthians 3, we saw that Paul laid the foundation. He didn't create the foundation. He laid the existing foundation of the building and other humans, Apollos first and then other Christian teachers, built upon that. But we saw that it is Christ who didn't create the foundation. Christ is the foundation. He is the very foundation of this building, which is the church. What's more, the reward that will be received at the judgment as a result of this building process will be based on not how much we've built, 
how well we built according to the world standards, but our heart attitude, right? The right heart is the desire for God's glory and the love of God. And so again, we see not only in the building, but the reward given because of the building and the foundation of the building is all God's. And finally, over the past two weeks, we saw this servant steward uh, stewardship illustration. And Paul said, we are merely servants of Christ. We are stewards of the word of God. We are slaves of Christ. He has given this immense privilege of being the servants of Christ. We are not to be leaders of factions. We are definitely not people that you should use to create division within the church. It is Christ's church and we are servants of him. And what's more, they are stewards of the Word of God. In other words, God has entrusted them with the Word of God. They are not to change it. They are not to abuse it. They are not to use it for their own glory. They are to present it how they are told to present it and for the stewardship and for the glory of the one who has given it to them. Much like the steward back then who would take care of all the goods and the children, but they were not to abuse that role. It was not their money. It was not their clothing. It was not their children. It was the slave owners, and they are merely stewards. So again, Christian responsibility, but within the parameters of the one who is in charge. Now here in chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul now tells them why he's been using these analogies about himself and Apollos. It is a specific lesson for the Corinthians because of their specific sin of pride that is manifested through exalting leaders and arrogantly creating factions. In other words, he didn't just write this to give them general lessons about Christian service or a how-to manual on church planting, though we do get that from these passages. He has a point. He's trying to teach them something that will hopefully result in them ceasing their pride and division. And that's why it's so important for us to study this passage with that angle so that we can use this also not just to judge the Corinthians or to look at ministry in general, but so that we would cease in our pride and conceit and division if it's there. Please note in this verse that along with this explanation, Paul once again uses this term of endearment. He changes his tone once again, and he calls them brethren, beloved siblings in the Lord. And this is important. And when you look at the whole context, this makes a lot of sense, all of this. Because if Paul is one of the people they are exalting, then helping them understand who and what he truly is will highlight the folly of what they're doing, right? It's almost like uh, all of a sudden everyone in the news is saying, yeah, this is the new, this is the guy, this is the candidate, this is the candidate who's going to beat Trump. He's going to go against Trump in November. And all the media are picking up on this, and then all of a sudden these papers came out and it said it's actually all a lie. He has no political expertise no political experience he doesn't he was even unaware that covid existed he doesn't even know what party he's a part of he never graduated from high school he's a drug abuser and you would say well we're definitely not going to exalt him now and obviously not in a sinful way paul is basically saying 
Why are you exalting me? I'm just a servant. I'm just a steward. I'm, I'm not the one in charge here. Okay? And so you see that he's using these illustrations to emphasize stop doing what you're doing. Now, it would be easy for Paul to just write these words. It would be easy for Paul just to send a letter and rebuke them and said, I heard you're, you're, you're using my name. You need to cut it out. You need to be humble. I mean, think about today. Thinking, think about the examples uh, you listen to and, and think about the things that you believe. Right? Due to modern technology and specifically the Internet, we are incredibly blessed to have so much good writing and video teaching at our fingertips. From books to blogs, there are so many good men who are teaching us, they're shepherding us, they're encouraging us, and yet you have never even met them. Some of them may have died before you were even born. But Paul is old school, really old school. He's not just pre-internet, he's pre-printing press. And he too is writing to teach, shepherd, and encourage. But it's not just what he writes, but what he exemplifies. What the Corinthians have seen in him and Apollos. Now even the, the celebrity pastors... And I'm not knocking them, but the reality is, is you can follow their teachings, you can read their books, but you don't know what they're like. Their own congregations don't know what they're like. Now, we give them the benefit of the doubt, and we assume that they are living according to what they teach. But here's Paul. My point is, they have seen Paul. He could easily write this, and some of the Corinthians say, no way, don't you remember he, he was bragging about how he's better than Apollos. He was basically inciting the division, but he didn't do that. Some of them could have read this and said, servant? He didn't serve us. He, he, he walked around here like he was the king, but he didn't do that. And they know that. So obviously this is the word of God. This is scripture. It is true. But my point is, is that he exemplifies this. He lives this. He's not just saying, this is how you should view me. This is how you should view me because this is how I lived in your midst. So this isn't just theoretical. It's not even merely theological. It is practical and it is exemplified. It is truth. And Paul's not overstating the fact of his humble service to combat the Corinthians' particular sin. It's truly who he is, what he believes about himself. And in a sense, you can say there's an accountability there because he couldn't write anything that would contradict his testimony and example that the Corinthians have seen. Now, with that in mind, we move on to our next point. Because Paul isn't just giving his opinion. Again, it is fact. We've seen his practical example, but the second challenge to our pride and conceit is the purposeful exhortation. Look at the second part of verse 6, the purposeful exhortation. So that, he says, I applied these illustrations to myself and Apollos, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So again, in our last point, Paul explained why he used those examples thus far in the letter. And now he explains the why. 
the why of why he used those illustrations. In other words, he explains why he is applying those pictures to himself and Apollos. We've already said that there is a lesson here. And now he clarifies what that lesson is. I quote, Not to exceed or go beyond, in some of your Bibles, what is written. Now this leads to a final goal that we'll talk about in a minute. That phrase, what is written, is a common phrase used in the New Testament to introduce a quotation from the Old Testament. We've seen Paul do this many times. But here, Paul doesn't quote a particular verse or particular scripture passage. And so he's talking about the scriptures in general, which is helpful. Specific verse in mind or not, we are not to go beyond anything that God has said. And and we get this. As Christians, we understand this. This principle is why we practice expository preaching at Grace. And if you're not familiar, it is just going through book by book of the Bible, verse by verse, explaining every verse, if not every word. And the reason we do this to connect to what we're saying about Paul is the best way not to go beyond, as Paul warns us against, or to exceed what is written, is to make sure you understand what is written. Right? If you want to make sure you follow the instructions correctly, you're going to read those instructions over and over again. Those of you who like to shop at Ikea understand this very well. Right? The first time you read the instructions over and over again and you built it well, maybe some loose drawers or something just because it was your first time. The second time you skimmed the instructions because you're like, I know what these dowels do. I know how to do it. And then the thing falls apart and almost kills your child. So the third time you read the directions very carefully again. Because to make sure you do it right, you have to read the directions. And that's what Paul is saying here. Read the Bible, understand God's instruction. That's why we do expository preaching. So I can explain to you exactly what God is saying so you do not go beyond what is written. Now, we need to be careful because that phrase, go beyond, I think in the English, just naturally we think to add to, right? Go beyond, right? If, if you say, uh, I was going to run a mile, but I went beyond that. I ran a mile and a half, right? We usually mean we do more than what was intended, but it means more than just adding to. Let me explain. Here's an example that you've heard me use before, but I'm going to change it up a little bit. And I use this uh, illustration to talk about this very issue of sticking with the scriptures as well as to explain why we do expository preaching. Here's the illustration. There's a mother. She sends her son out to the store to buy a loaf of bread. She's done this a dozen times. She knows exactly how much the bread she wants costs, and she knows exactly how much time it will take to get to the store, buy the bread, and come back, give or take how many people are uh, at the store. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I give this illustration, I'm picturing something most of you, all of you probably have not seen, and that is maybe a little mom-and-pop store where we would buy bread when we were in Eastern Europe. Okay, but where you just go, there's no one else there, you grab the bread and you go back. Either way, you get the illustration. So, 
She says, here's $5. All I have is a $5 bill. I know how much the bread costs, so I want exactly $1.25 in change, and you should be back by lunchtime, which is in 30 minutes. Buy the bread, takes 30 minutes, $1.25 in change, one loaf of bread. Let's say he comes back an hour later with no change because he stopped at the arcade with the change and spent an extra half hour there. There's a problem. He has the bread. They can still have their lunch. So he obeyed his mom in that, but no change. And he's late. So he disobeyed. Just obeying one part and not two other parts is disobedience. But it would be just as wrong if he came back in half an hour with a $1.25 change as his mom instructed but with a dozen donuts instead of bread. You got the time right. You got the change right. But you bought the wrong thing. It would be equally wrong, though perhaps financially helpful, if he came back in half an hour but with no bread and had all $5 back. And so you see that disobedience is not just adding to there's various factors to it that would equate to going beyond what is written in the Scriptures. Here's my point. When we say, or when I say, we must do exactly what God says and not go beyond it, everyone listening hears something different based on their experience. And they all allude to different scenarios with the boy and the five dollars. Some who have repented of and come out of legalistic or Christian cult backgrounds will hear me say, don't add extra man-made rules to God's Word. Others of you who have left liberal churches might hear me say, you can't just ignore certain passages. You have to obey all of them. Like the boy had to obey everything that the mother said. And still others, perhaps, who have left charismatic churches here, you can't just worship God however you want. You have to look at the Scriptures, and you can't just disregard Scriptures altogether and just go by your feelings. So, when Paul says don't go beyond, it means don't add to, but also don't take away, and also don't disregard part or whole. When Paul says that, he means all of the illustrations that I've given, okay? And all of those speak to this particular context of what the Corinthians are doing. Remember, they are lifting up and thus causing division and stoking their own pride and egos through Paul and Apollos. Now, the reason this is clear and, and actually a very good uh, example for us because it is very clear in the Scriptures that pastors and elders and teachers of the church, such as Paul and Apollos, that Christians are commanded to give them proper honor and respect. First Thessalonians five twelve and 13, 
But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay? So you're supposed to do that. What's wrong? 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So we know from Scripture that they are to respect and give honor to their elders, their teachers, the apostles. But within the Corinthian church, there were those who were misapplying these commands and truths on both ends. We know that some were going beyond honor and esteem as commanded to the point of worship and veneration and causing division. And some were not going far enough by only focusing on other pastors. And we will see in 1 Corinthians actually attacking the character of the Apostle Paul, not because of sin or anything he had done, but just making things up. And so again, we see two sides of them abusing a clear command. Some were ignoring it completely by criticizing Paul for his faithfulness. And so we need to understand that if someone is abusing something, it's not that we ditch that altogether. We fix it and go back to the Scriptures, see where we are going beyond exceeding the Scriptures, and make sure we go back to doing what is right. Now, oftentimes we add to our Christian behavior with our own convictions, and that's fine, as long as you don't lift it up to the point of Scripture like your view on entertainment or your view on uh, smoking or drinking. Well, how do we not lift that to the point of Scriptures? Well, if you use that as a form of worship, then that's great as long as your heart is right. You know you've lifted it to the point of Scripture in your own mind, even if you'd never say it's the same level as Scripture. If you're judging other people for doing what is not uh, forbidden in Scripture... Or you even go out and you tell people that they are not supposed to do those things if they are a Christian, okay? When you do that second one, well, the first one too, not only are you putting your convictions on the level of Scripture, you are putting your opinion on the level of God's truth. So we must be careful. So Paul reminds them of what a true servant is so that they would learn not to exceed what is written. When you exceed the scriptures, you are no longer doing what God expects of you, but what you want to do. Thus, even loving appreciation and loyalty are polluted with pride and conceit. That's a secondary lesson that Paul is trying to teach them. And we see this in the last part of the verse. So that none of you or no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. The word arrogant literally means to puff up, right? And we, we use that illustration when we talk about pride, right? The proud as a peacock, right? Because we're talking about when he puffs up his feathers. It means literally to puff up, to inflate, to blow up, to fill with hot air. Remember the accusation of the IT tech to the man in the balloon? The avoidance of boasting and puffing oneself up is the final goal of this teaching. Okay, And it's not that we can work backwards and say, well, I don't really struggle with pride, 
so I don't have to adhere to not going beyond the scriptures. You get that. He's just going from big picture to smaller. It's a fun thing. I'm sure there's a scientific name to this. I know that there's animals, right? Genus, species, family. I probably got the order wrong, but we've been trying to teach our boys that at dinner time, going from big to small, right? Food, vegetable, green beans, right? And so trying to teach them categories, and that's what Paul is doing. He's going from big idea to smaller to specific, okay? So the point is, All of these apply even if when he gets to the specifics, it doesn't apply to you. And we've seen that throughout 1 Corinthians because we don't really have division like the Corinthians had and where you're exalting different people, exalting me or exalting John MacArthur or exalting R.C. Sproul to the point that you're causing division in the church. But that doesn't mean we ditch the whole thing and don't apply it. So in the same example from my dinner time, even though we may not have green beans that day, that doesn't mean a vegetable isn't a food. You see what I mean? So this still all applies and needs to be adhered to. So the avoidance of boasting and puffing oneself up is the final goal of this teaching. Paul specifies that the arrogance is, quote, one against another. And that's simply what we've talked about all along, that they're taking one individual, Paul, and pitting him against Apollos, Apollos against Peter, Peter against Jesus, whatever it may be, and that's no good. You can argue that it's a pride in persons, right? It's a pride in that individual, Paul, Apollos, Peter, but ultimately, it's still pride. And all arrogance is about me, myself, and I. All pride, no matter what form it takes. Bragging about your company being better, bragging about your favorite pastor being better, bragging about whatever, pride is pride, and ultimately it is about yourself. And that's why we see that Paul's not just saying, hey, don't do this, we, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be worshipped, we're just servants. He says, you guys are being proud and you need to repent. Okay? So that's the purposeful or exhortation. We've seen the practical example before that. Thirdly and finally, the personal evaluation. The personal evaluation, we see this in verse 7. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? To drive the point home, Paul uses three rhetorical questions, which we see in many of his epistles. He starts with a general belief among the Corinthians about themselves, who regards you as superior. Now, as you know, uh, even in uh, today's English, a rhetorical question doesn't expect an answer. It's a question to prove a point because the answer is uh, very obvious. Okay? So who regards you as superior? The word regards means to judge between two things or two people, to make a distinction, to make a difference. And that's why in the ESV it says, who sees anything different in you? The NIV says, who makes you different from anyone else? And we know from the context, because of the pride and division, that the NAS says superior because the Corinthians are thinking not just that they're different from one another, but that they're better than one another. So who regards you as superior or different in a positive 
way. Okay? It's a distinction that each individual Corinthian is making, which ultimately makes it us versus them, or me versus him, or her versus that guy. As with all conceit, this becomes a problem because if everyone thinks they're better than others, then obviously nobody is right. Especially in this case, as evidenced by the next question, what do you have that you did not receive? This is a good question for all believers. This is not just Paul talking about his instruction to the Corinthians. This is uh, applicable to all believers. This builds off of the first question, which emphasizes that they aren't superior and nobody regards them as such. Not Paul, not Apollos, and definitely not God. I mean, if Paul and Apollos see themselves as servants and slaves, do you really think they see these other Christians as something beyond that? Anyway, the point is that even if we do have more than what others have, and the world, by the world standard, by, the, by, our, by our company standard, by our socioeconomic standards, we may have more than them and be considered superior by them, the real, reality is that what we have been given, or what we have rather, was given to us. And this, of course, applies to all things spiritual as well, right? Specifically, it was given to us by God. Or I should say, those things, they were given to us by God. Not to belabor the point, but it may help to mention that if we were given these things by God and understand grace, right? When we're given things by God, it's not because we earn them. If we were given these things by God, then we are neither the creators nor the bestowers. And that's very important because we sometimes act as if we are. And by the way, uh, in case you're a little confused, but is, isn't it saying that didn't we look at that we will be rewarded with eternal reward based on our heart attitude and our actions? And the answer is yes, but the bigger picture is what we're about to talk about because even your ability, even your desire, even your salvation was a gift from God. So here's the idea. Back to a couple weeks ago. If a slave has been chosen by his owner to become the house steward, okay? So now he's taken out from the field and he's brought into the house to now have this higher responsibility. It is a huge responsibility. Remember we talked about he would be uh, over the stewardship to make sure that there was enough food, there was enough clothing, there was enough fabric. Remember this is a time where food and fabrics were not as easy to come by right? There, you didn't have many different outfits. They were to last a long time. Even they were in charge of, of the, tutoring the kids or if they had other slaves tutoring them to oversee the tutoring. So it was a huge responsibility. It was a great privilege. And now he might now live in the house instead of the slaves' quarters or sleeping out in the field, okay? Now he has nicer clothes, 
than other slaves. He has a more comfortable bed. He has direct access to the master. He has a larger tummy because he's well-fed. He's not starving and he's not working under the hot sun doing manual labor in the fields all day. But he still has no right to look down on the other slaves as if he was better because he only has what he has because of the master's choice, because of the master's training, and because of what the master has put on his table and in his bedroom. We are only what we are because of the master's choice and because of the master's training or gifting. That goes to spiritual gifts as well as hobbies and abilities. So, the implied and expected answer to this question is nothing. There is nothing that the Corinthians have that they did not receive. There is nothing that we have that we did not receive. There is nothing that the, the most pagan person in the world has that he did not receive. We call that common grace. Okay? Again, we're not just talking about spiritual gifting. We're talking about your education, your ability to cope at that level, at that school, your ability to stay up, the parents you have given them, the, the, the idea that God gave them to immigrate here or somewhere else, the finances, every penny, all your abilities, your job, the fact that the, the, the boss said okay and hired you, even your family. Not to be crude, but the Lord is in control of every cell of your body. He knows every hair on your head. And so he knew exactly not only when you would get pregnant, but how you would get pregnant and which cell would fertilize that egg. He gave you everything. He gave you your looks regardless of whether you think you're good looking or not. It is a gift from God. He has given you your clothing. He has given you even the people who have influenced you uh, in a negative way. He has given you the growth that you have because of the persecution from unbelievers. He has given you your experiences. He has given you the tolerance in those early days when you thought it was nasty for coffee or energy drinks, so that you could study, so that you could get to where you are. Some of you are working and going to school. God gave you that. God gave you the roof over your head. Yeah, you can complain that it leaks. You can complain about the cost of all of those bids to replace your roof, but God gave you that. God gave you the ability to choose between a $7,000 and $10,000 bid. God gave you the ability to say, well, the $10,000 is more expensive but affordable. God gave you everything, everything. We praise him. And we don't use these things and say, I'm better than you. I'm better than you because I'm a pastor. I'm better than you because I went to seminary. No, God gave me that. You're not better than someone else because you're the CEO and this other guys and started at the company the same time as you. No, God gave you that. Do we work hard? Yes. Is there responsibility? Yes. But God gave it all to you. Everything. And so 
with the answer, the implied answer to that question, we have a logical segue to the next question that brings us back to the situation at hand. Right? What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. The final question, and if you did receive it, which we did, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, why do you brag as if you earned it yourself? And therein lies the heart of the issue. You're acting like you earned it when you had nothing to do with it. Again, there's a place for human responsibility. There is a need for us to obey, to wake up, to not be lazy, to do the hard work of disciplining yourself for godliness, no doubt. And there's a place for us to recognize us to recognize in you your hard work and your faithfulness and your diligence and dedication. Thank you for that. But that is very different than pride. There is no basis for pride and conceit and arrogance because ultimately it was all given to you. As Paul writes, there is no foundation for boasting. Think about it. Although you may do it because of what people will classify as a lack of self-confidence, the reality is all self-conceit must be based on a belief of superiority as if our gifts were earned or self-bestowed. Otherwise, you would only boast in God. Otherwise, you would not have low self-esteem you wouldn't even be concerned about the word esteem. All you would care about is the glory of God. The Corinthians boasting, as I have said to you many times before, shows that they miss the whole point of the gospel of grace. That ultimately is why this is so offensive, so sinful and worthy of Paul's time and rebuke. But again, here's why. Not only does the acknowledgement of grace, that is, the, that all things have been given to you undeserved by God, keep you from boasting or thinking yourself superior, grace also leads to humility. Grace leads to gratitude. Grace leads to shaking your head when people praise you and instead say, uh-uh, not me, it's all him. I appreciate that. But praise God. See, it does take discipline. But it doesn't take discipline to be thankful. What the discipline needed here is, is to appreciate grace. Then gratitude and humility will naturally flow out of it. You see, this is where we talk about the big picture attitude. Because if you don't get that right... And this, even you want even bigger picture? Focus on the attributes of God, His holiness, your sinfulness, what He has done for you. Then understanding grace becomes easier. Then thankfulness naturally flows. Because if you just say, well, I just want to be the kind of guy that encourages people. I just want to be the kind of guy who is more well-respected, which then just goes back to the, the problem what we're talking about because it's all about you. But if you start there and just focus there and you train yourself to be 
not to be, but to say thank you. And perhaps even on a selfish level, you, you, you get yourself to actually have a heart of thankfulness, but it's not directed at God's grace, then you're just a legalist. And you're going to get to heaven one day, and there's going to be all of this wood, hay, and straw labeled gratitude that's going to burn up, you see. You have to focus on God's grace. You have to train yourself to recognize you don't deserve anything outside of what you have earned yourself in the eyes of God. And in case you're wondering what that is, I'll just summarize it with one word, and that is hell. The only thing you have earned is hell. You have not earned your salary. You have not earned your giftedness. You have earned hell. And everything else is a gift from God. See, worldly wisdom and self-sufficiency as opposed to grace lead to boasting. It leads to judging. The fact that the Corinthians are puffed up against each other effectively and practically denies that God has given them all things. And what they should be doing is praising God with proper humility, humbly expressing gratitude. And that's what we should be doing as well. And so I hope that as you think through this passage, you understand that on a practical level, what Paul is doing is challenging us as those who challenge other people. He's challenging us on our pride and conceit through his practical example, his purposeful exhortation, and his personal evaluation. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would learn from this and we would evaluate our lives. Help us to focus on grace. Help us to appreciate grace. Help us to think biblically of you and biblically of ourselves and therefore have a greater understanding and appreciation of grace that we would be humble. I pray we would take to heart what we have learned this morning and we would use those and your Holy Spirit would help us to combat our pride and conceit. In Jesus' name, amen.